the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Interesting piece by Rich Thau at CNN.com, no less. The voters who are still backing Trump. Rich Thau is the president and co-founder of a research firm called Engages specializes in message testing and message refinement for trade associations and advocacy groups. He's been doing focus grouping as part of this uh, swing voter project. Uh, He uh, writes, "I, I understand pollsters are consistently telling us Biden is far ahead of Trump. I'm not looking to pick a fight as their sample sizes are much larger than than mine. That said, as a focus group moderator, I'm hearing strong support for President Trump from a critical sliver of the electorate. Uh, each month for the past 17 months, I've had a unique window into the to the Americans largely responsible for giving President his slim uh, giving President Trump his slim electoral college victory. The so-called Obama Trump swing voters across the upper Midwest. Our swing voter project has uncovered that many of these people who live in places such as Canton, Ohio, Davenport, Iowa, Erie, Pennsylvania, Macomb County, Michigan, prefer Trump over Biden. In fact, 22 of 33 respondents in these four most recent locations feel this way. And over the first year of the project, that was March 19th through February 2020, more than two-thirds of the Obama-Trump voters said they would take uh, Trump over Obama in a hypothetical matchup. That's atrophied a bit in the intervening, uh, uh, intervening six months, perhaps, but still um, perhaps underestimating the strength of Trump's base voters and their stickiness. And uh, this seems to be something the left consistently does. Perhaps it's just a matter of self-delusion. There was a piece of Daily Beast this week, a Trump campaign worried about his base crumbling. I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason his base is not going to crumble, even when they don't like what he does, is because he has largely done or attempted to do what he said he would as a candidate. And he's also been able, I think, largely, to convey the feeling that even when it's uncomfortable how he fights for you, he's fighting for you. He is on your side of the skirmish line fighting out against those who said they would represent you for generations and did not. And silenced you, really, before even the cancel culture took hold. There was something uh, Trump did yesterday that I thought was really uh, this was Tuesday, actually, that I thought was really interesting. And it shows for anybody who thought, oh, he doesn't even want to win. This is a guy who absolutely wants to win. And he's showing an ability to be resilient in a way that I don't think Biden or the Democrats can be. They're too, you know, uh, basically uh, consumed with navel gazing. Trump. Uh, the other day talking about Tony Fauci and Fauci's popularity versus his 
listen to all the way to the end. This is important because he did the same thing in one of those Sunday talk show interviews just a few days ago as well. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. You know, it's sort of interesting. We've listened to Dr. Fauci. I haven't always agreed with him, and that's, I think, pretty standard. That's okay. Uh, he did not want us to ban our this, this put up the ban to China when China was heavily infected very badly, Wuhan. Uh, he didn't want to do that, and I did, and other things. And he told me I was right, and he told me I saved tens of thousands of lives, which was generous, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's fact. Then I banned, I did the ban on Europe. Uh, but I get along with him very well, and I agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he's got a very good approval rating, and I like that. I, it's good. Because remember, he's working for this administration. He's working with us, John. We, we could have gotten other people. We could have gotten somebody else. It didn't have to be Dr. Fauci. He's working with our administration. And for the most part, we've done pretty much what he and others, Dr. Burks and others who are terrific, recommended. And he's got this high approval rating. So why don't I have a high approval rating with respect and the administration with respect to the virus? We should have a very high because what we've done in terms of uh, we're just reading off about the masks and the gowns and the ventilators and numbers that nobody's seen. And the testing at 55 million tests, we tested more than anybody in the world. I have a graph that I'd love to show you. I'm, perhaps you've seen it, where we're up here and the rest of the world is down at a level that's just a tiny fraction of what we've done in terms of testing. So it sort of is curious. A man works for us, with us very closely, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, also highly thought of. And yet they're highly thought of, but nobody likes me. And he went on to say, I guess it must be my personality. Um, so two things, one being gracious to Fauci and Burks, that's, yeah, that's smart, but that the whole thing, he did the same thing about his personality, the Sunday interview being self-effacing, which runs counter to, you know, the Trump persona and the criticism of Trump. You know, it, I, I think it's, I think that's purposeful. And I think it's really smart. Uh, I think that sort of temperance is going to be wildly helpful to him. And the other thing it does it gets you off his personality and focus. You're, yeah. OK. He even concedes that he's abrasive, that he's not always, uh, uh, you know, the most charitable person and so forth. But w- maybe I should think about the substance of what he's done. It is true that he employs Tony Fauci. He could bring in, you know, John Ioannidis from Stanford or something. He probably should have a long time ago. Yes. But uh, he could do that. He's not done that. He has been very charitable and gracious to Fauci and Burks, who I like and who I respect. He all he recognizes his shortcomings, his personality, and why people why he rubs people the wrong way. Maybe I should think about what he's actually done rather than just uh, his persona. I think it's really interesting this pivot that he's made just in the last few days. For more on uh, all of this, the uh, messaging as we move into the ninety day sprint here, we're pleased to be joined by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, uh, also twenty twenty twelve presidential candidate, of course, New York Times bestselling author of the recently released. Trump and the American future, solving the great problems of our time. Speaker Gingrich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Awesome. I'm delighted to be with you. And I thought that was actually a fascinating uh, discussion you were having about uh, Trump and Fauci and and, uh, how the whole coronavirus thing has evolved. Yeah, I mean, do do you see that as well? Or am I reading too much into that, that that the self-effacing Trump is a better Trump? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think... I think he has uh, realized 
least I hope he has realized, that the country really wants him to be uh, inclusive and concerned and presidential uh, because we're, we have some real problems. I mean, this is, when you take everything and wrap it into one, the government imposed depression, the government imposed isolation, uh, the disease itself, uh, et cetera. Now, this is probably the biggest crisis we've had as a country since World War II. And I think people want to have a leader who is stable and reassuring. And, that, you know, Trump, Trump did a great job of being somebody who broke up the old order. And as long as we were in prosperity and safety, uh, people, I think, were very happy to have him take on the deep state and have him rattle the cage and change things. But I think now that they're seeing all these other factors, I think that they really want reassurance, and I think it's much more effective for him uh, to uh, focus on being reassuring. Well, and that's part of why I wrote Trump and the American Teacher. I, I think that he, he is a remarkable figure who has achieved a great deal, and I think this election is probably the most decisive choice since Abraham Lincoln in 1864, in that uh, if you end up with a Biden-Pelosi-Schumer world, it'll be so radically different yeah, from I'm, uh, the world you would have had. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, I see it as a choice between law and order with President Trump and then complete anarchy if Biden becomes president. How do you see it? No, I, I think that's right. The Demo- For some reason, the Democrats have become pro-criminal and anti-police. And, of course, as you know, when you look at, for example, one weekend alone in which New York and Chicago have 152 Americans shot, you have to say there's something profoundly wrong. And I think that's what part of what Trump is, is, is grappling with. And, of course, Biden is totally owned by the people who are committed to uh, very weak laws, very, uh, you know, minimizing the effect of the police, um, maximum bail opportunities, et cetera. And it just, there's been an explosion of crime in cities that are run by Democrats because their core policies and their core structures just don't work. Uh, now you have Seattle, which is not only crippling the police, it's talking about uh, actually uh, closing prisons. And, you know, don't, don't, let's, let's not put uh, people in prison, which if, if you're dealing with a predator who goes around shooting people, uh, you have an obligation to keep them away from the rest of society. Uh, but the Democrats have bought this stuff in a way that's weird. And uh, I, I actually, I, I tweeted yesterday, that, you know, the, a number of the police forces in, in Wisconsin are now saying that they will not help protect the Democratic Convention yep. um, because the city of Milwaukee is adopting rules that make it impossible for them to deal with crowds. And, and I just tweeted, this could be a great test, given what left-wing Democrats say. Maybe they should not have any security. And let's see if, if Antifa and the predators and the criminals will, will, be, will play nice. And if you had a Democratic convention with zero police and zero security, uh, if their theories are right, uh, there shouldn't be any problems. That's right. You just have an army of social workers at the ready, right? <laughs> That's right. You have people there who are willing to counsel with you and give you therapy so that you'll feel better. Right, while exactly. you're throwing an M80 at, while, you're, while they're taking incoming M80s. Yeah, right. Right, so, exactly. So we have uh, less than... If like, only there had been enough social workers in Portland, mm-hmm. there never would have been a problem. Exactly. Right. So what should President Trump's platform be? We have, what, 96 days until the election? Should he focus on reopening schools, the economy, the new... Well, you know, I, what do you I think? think you have to distinguish. Look, as, as president... 
he has to focus on reopening the schools because every single report we get from doctors and from medical people uh, is that children are much better off if they go back to school. Uh, and frankly, he ought to fight for a provision that says if your school district will not reopen, then the money ought to be given to the parents to go get their kids educated. I mean, you have some school districts and counties that have $3 billion budgets. And if they're not going to reopen, why are we paying them $3 billion? Well, so yeah, well, I think in that sense, as president, he has to focus on, on, on education. As a candidate, he ought to draw a sharp distinction between the future he offers, getting back to the lowest black unemployment, the lowest Latino unemployment, the lowest female unemployment, the things he's already accomplished once. And he has to focus, you know, we just launched a, 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 a terrific uh, explorer to, to the moon, I mean, to Mars. Uh, he ought to focus on positive achievements, the, the, the breakthrough with the viruses. Uh, we're gonna have, we will have, I think, at least three different vaccines available late this year. Um, the, the, the number of things he's done to break through the system and to bring free enterprise to bear, the production systems, is astonishing. And uh, the bureaucracy's failed. And Trump stepped in and got the private sector to fill the gaps. And uh, Senate Republican COVID relief uh, uh, legislation does include 10 percent of the money that they have earmarked for school reopenings to be in the form of scholarships for schools that uh, that do remain closed, as you suggest, one of the perhaps only redeeming provisions of that legislation. I wanted to get to your reaction to um, the Joe Biden campaign message. It, it seems to me it's a little bit of Warren Harding redux, right? Return to normalcy. And we had this conversation with James Pogue, who's an SAS, who uh, uh, wrote a piece over Harper's Magazine, spent a month in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the run-up to the Biden-Sanders primary, and then spent a little time after talking to a lot of people in that swing area, in that swing state, who voted for Trump last go-around. And uh, one of the things that he suggests is this idea of, you know, going back to some fictitious normal is actually the most dangerous message that Joe Biden could adopt because, number one, it's not possible. People don't believe there is any sort of normal that we're going to go back to. Number two, his own party doesn't want to go back to whatever that normal was. They want revolution, as we're seeing play out in the streets in part, and certainly with the rhetoric of the backbenchers like AOC. And um, and so it's not a credible message and it's not something that is uh, animating to the base of his party. Do, do you agree that the return to normalcy, it sounds good on its face, but it's uh, it's a guaranteed loser for Biden? Oh, yeah, I look, there, there has not been a, Harding's a good example. Because Harding, of course, was in a different era. And, and back then it actually did mean something because it was coming out of World War One and a very deep depression. Uh, which have lasted very a very short time. The Depression of 1920-21 was only about 18 months. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, the Spanish flu. So he could use it in a way that people believed it. But in the first, first place, anything Biden proposes which suggests it would require strong, energetic leadership is a dead loser. I mean, you know, I tell people all the time, when you think about Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, President of China, who's a very tough, smart guy. And you say to yourself, all right, we need to put an American president in to negotiate with him. Do you want a tough guy like Trump, or do you want a guy like Biden who will fall asleep halfway through the meeting? And that's why I think Biden has a problem. And I think there's nothing Biden can offer. He can make promises, 
Ultimately, it's going to be Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi as a team. They're going to offer extraordinary left-wing ideas. I mean, Pelosi got 207 Democrats to vote for a $1,200 bonus for every illegal immigrant. Now, why you would want a Pelosi bonus for illegal immigrants is, you know, you have to be pretty far to the left to think this is a clever idea. Mm. That's the sort of stuff that they're into, and they, they just, I think they get further and further away from the average American. He is former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, 2020-2012 presidential candidate as well, as we all know. New York Times bestselling author, the most recent offering, Trump and the American Future, Solving the Great Problems of Our Time. Speaker Gingrich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Lon He Chen of the Hoover Institution for townhall.com. President Trump needs to tell the American people how he plans to fix our health care system if he wants to win re-election. It's an issue that many Americans care deeply about and one that the president and Republicans should not be afraid to address. The contrast between the Republican and Democratic visions for health care could not be more stark. Democrats have called for more bureaucracy and more government control in our health care system. Changes that have only driven costs higher and diminished choices for patients. But their interest in a single-payer, government-run system shows that Democrats have grander ambitions ahead. In contrast, President Trump and the Republicans want a health care system where patients and doctors, not bureaucrats, make critical decisions. One with more choices at lower cost, and a system where we have access to cutting-edge treatments and cures. The choice on health care is clear. Now it's up to President Trump and Republicans to make the case for why they're right. I'm Lon He Chen. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Impacting policy decisions today. Preparing public leaders for tomorrow.